Welcome back to the Threat Assessment 2022 podcast series. I'm your co-host, Michael Frank, from Economist Impact's Policy and Insight Practice. And I am Yuan Xiong. Welcome to Episode 3, Data Ownership in Digital Finance. In our last episode, Yuan and I talked with Jimmy Ung, Group Chief Information Officer and Head of Group Technology and Operations at DBS, and James Lloyd, Managing Director at City and APAC Head of Spring by City. Jimmy shared with us the work that DBS has done to help them earn a reputation as a particularly digitally savvy bank. And who doesn't love the acronym Gandalf that represents their ambition to join the ranks of the leading tech companies of the world? Right. James pointed out a few areas of innovation in fintech that might happen in the upcoming years, and his understanding of the market, as well as the philosophy of acquiring or upskilling talents. He also mentioned that even though corporations compared to customers tend to be minimally impacted by fintech or non-bank players, their expectations are converging so as to meet the ever-changing consumer expectations. Exactly. Okay, so today is the last episode of this podcast series. We're going to talk about data ownership and regulation as well as open banking. Yuan, what did we find in our research on this theme? One interesting finding we had in our research is that the perception that traditional financial institutions are generally not in favor of regulation appears to be untrue. In fact, our survey respondents rated regulations as one of the lowest barriers towards their digital transformation, indicating they prefer clarity over uncertainty when facing greater competition. And policy is certainly a competitive advantage of the traditional institutions that are already highly regulated. Exactly. So if you're interested in learning more, please head to impact.economist.com and you can find Threat Assessment 2022 Digital Competition and Global Finance available to download for free. So today's episode, we're going to talk with two experts in data policy and regulation. First up, we have Chester Chua, who is the head of government affairs and public policy at Google Cloud in Asia. Hi, Chester. Welcome on board. So my first question is, um, since nowadays data has taken center stage in our society, people care more about who could obtain, transfer, or own their data. So what do you think about data ownership? How will the future look like? Um, shall we be more open on data access and ownership? And how will this affect the market? Well, thanks, Ruben. That is an excellent question. Let me answer this from two perspectives. One, from Google's perspective as a cloud service provider, and then the second as just me as an individual user and consumer. Right. So from the first perspective, cloud service providers like Google, we are just data processors and intermediaries. We don't control or own the data that user organizations store with us on the cloud. But there are some cynics that may be concerned that Google, as a huge advertising company, as a big tech, we may use the data that user organizations store with us to support our advertising business, such as perhaps by selling their data to third parties. Right. I just want to take this opportunity to clarify that we absolutely do not do that. And this is something that is really important to us because there is nothing more important to our business as a cloud service provider than trust. Let me draw you an analogy from the financial services industry. Right. Would you ever trust a bank? if the bank were to give your money to someone else without your permission, 
same as us? Would you ever trust a cloud service provider if the cloud service provider would give your data to someone else without your permission? Right. So it is in our interest to ensure that we respect the ownership that our enterprise customers have of the data that they store with us. And we are very transparent with user organizations who store data with us because we provide full visibility of who has access to their data and for what purpose. So that is from the perspective of a cloud service provider from Google's perspective. But perhaps from an individual customer, when a bank or financial institution or whatever organization collects data from me or from you as an individual user, the data technically belongs to me, right? The bank or the financial institution or any organization has to seek my consent to use my data or to share it with third parties. So I think in terms of data ownership, there is a general consensus on how that works. But obviously that becomes tricky when organizations who collect our data they have to obtain or transfer our data to other organizations. That is where it becomes tricky, and that is where consent becomes a huge issue. That's really interesting, and I think that makes a lot of sense. Companies that are storing this data have an incentive, if they want to preserve their customer relationships, to act in a way that engenders trust when they have these data in their systems. But does that mean that we don't have anything to worry about from a legal perspective, that we just allow those market forces to to protect our interests with respect to data ownership? Well, not really, because I feel like uh, personal data protection is still a relatively uh, new field in, in some markets and in some uh, industries. So it's still an issue that we need to pay attention to. Um, something that I found really interesting in uh, the report that Economist Impact has published was the issue of how the relationship between traditional banks and fintechs have really changed over the years precisely because of the issue of data ownership. Open banking has really allowed these incumbents to share their customers' data if they have consent from the customer. This puts the power back into the hands of individual customers like us, and that should be how it should be done. But then what it also does is that open banking has really altered the dynamics between these incumbents and fintechs. So I think that we still need to pay attention to data ownership but I think increasingly, you see that with this change in dynamics, you will see that the issues are going to be increasingly different as we move forward. Uh, yeah, and I, th- I think one of the, you know, from a, a policy perspective, one of the things we found most interesting in exploring this theme is that intersection of policy and technology. What do you think is that, that trade-off, you know, between policy and technology when we talk about something like open banking? Do you think that one of them is is clearly harder to resolve than the other, or are these both relatively similar challenges and opportunities in the sense that we've got maybe a lot of the tools in place, but we're not quite there to make open banking a reality because of both the policy and the technology requirements? Thanks, Michael. I really love that question because I'm a policy wonk myself. And as a policy wonk, like many people who are probably listening to this podcast, we would probably want to say that, oh, regulations are a barrier to technology adoption. But I just want to set the context and provide some background. At a talk that I attended last year, there was a speaker from one of the world's 10th largest banks and definitely one of the most digitally progressive banks that I know of. And what that speaker shared during that talk was that only 10 to 15% of the bank's entire workloads are on the cloud today. I was really surprised when I heard that because if one of the world's most digitally progressive banks only have 10 to 15% of their workloads in the cloud, what does that mean for the rest of the industry? And you may wonder why why do we care about the proportion of workloads that are on the cloud? Because the cloud forms a key foundation of digital transformation today. 
the Economist Impact Report, found that digital leaders are twice more likely than digital laggards to see cloud migration as a key strategy to meeting digital competition. And I found this really interesting because it really resonated with um, two other studies that Google had commissioned last year. The first study found that Singapore has the most cloud-friendly regulatory framework across 11 Asia-Pacific markets. But despite Singapore having the most cloud-friendly regulatory framework, we also found that Singapore had the lowest proportion of financial institutions that are relying primarily on the public cloud at just 27%. In fact, on the other end of the spectrum, we found that Indonesia, despite it having the least cloud-friendly regulatory environment, it also had the highest proportion of financial institutions that rely primarily on the public cloud. So then we ask ourselves, why are financial institutions not moving to the cloud despite the regulatory environment being relatively friendly to cloud adoption? Right, And we found that almost half of the financial institutions in Singapore were not moving to the cloud because of their dependency on legacy IT infrastructure. And this is consistent with what we are hearing from customers. So our hypothesis when we saw this finding was that before the cloud era, financial institutions in countries like Singapore and Australia, they were so advanced in their IT infrastructure and they had accumulated significant legacy IT infrastructure. But the advantage that they had in the past has become a liability in the cloud era of the future because it was very difficult to get financial institutions to move out of their on-premise data centers because of the sunk costs involved in that. Right? On the other hand, financial institutions in countries like Indonesia, they were not as advanced previously. But that disadvantage in the past has allowed them to leapfrog an entire generation of IT infrastructure by moving to the cloud directly. So this is a long-winded answer to your question, Michael, about regulations. But here you can see that very often we hear financial institutions saying that the regulatory environment is not conducive for technology adoption. But in this case, you see that the regulatory environment is very conducive for technology adoption, yet we don't see a higher propensity to adopt such technologies. Very often we have to look within these organizations themselves because they have a whole bunch of legacy IT infrastructure that is holding them back from their digital transformation journeys. Yeah, that's interesting. I think a related policy question to data ownership, but is data portability, which I think gets a lot of attention in data law and policy circles, but maybe isn't quite as well understood within the broader business community. Do those types of data silos in an economy where the consumer does not have that right to data portability inherently advantage the incumbents? Or is that a potential opportunity for upstarts to come in and exploit and offer a better experience? Yeah, I think in the past, that certainly is true, that there is an inherent advantage to the incumbents because they're the ones who are holding the data. But with open banking, that has really altered the dynamics between these incumbents in the traditional banks and the startups like the fintechs. But one thing that I think looking forward into the future, which is a question that Yuan was asking right at the start of this conversation, was again, this relationship could change again because there is growing interest in what we call privacy-enhancing technologies. What these technologies allow organizations to do is that organizations can extract insights from data while protecting personal data of individual consumers. Right? In some cases, they don't even need to have to transfer that data. And why is this important? Because these incumbent banks and the startups, they may not be willing to disclose proprietary data of their customers. So they may not want to be transferring data or sharing that data with each other. But yet at the same time, there's huge benefit to them collaborating 
privacy enhancing technologies, what these technologies allow traditional banks and startups to do is to be able to extract data insights from data that is sitting across different data sources without having to transfer that data. So I think there's a lot of potential looking forward into the future of privacy enhancing technologies for there to be greater collaboration between these traditional banks and the fintechs. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there has been this view around data's value that's at, at really at a high level. I think back to a, a cover of The Economist from a few years ago referring to the new oil. And there's this instinct to retain and hold data. There's this view that, you know, we, we don't necessarily know what we are going to do with this data, but we just know we have some advantage by holding it. Do you think that there are going to be windfalls to the firms that have, you know, the largest data sets or the most most diverse data sets in terms of developing AI models and new financial services? Is that part of the reason why the incumbents in particular might be a little bit wary of fully portable data environment? I think this goes back to an earlier point about data being the new oil. And I find that a really interesting uh, perspective because... I feel like data has value only in the hands of someone who knows what to do with that data. Data isn't like oil or gold that has intrinsic value. The value that these fintechs and startups are bringing to the industry is that they are very creative and innovative in the ways that they are using this data and extracting value out of this data. So I think the way forward is that the traditional banks are increasingly seeing value in partnering with these fintechs and startups to really extract value and insight out of the data that the traditional banks are holding. And we do see that increasing collaboration to really maximize the value of the data that is held by the traditional banks. And the value doesn't just accrue to the traditional banks or the fintechs. It also benefits and consumers like you and I as well. Because we get a much better service and much better value and a more seamless customer experience when these service providers, these financial services providers are able to understand us better and know our preferences uh, better and are able to personalize the services that they provide to us. WSO2 helps you innovate faster with our platform for API management, integration, and customer identity and access management. Leading enterprises across finance, healthcare, retail, and other industries rely on WSO2 for mission-critical applications exposing more than 500,000 APIs, managing over 500 million identities, and executing over 18 trillion transactions annually. Visit WSO2.com for more. Chester got into some pretty interesting research findings that Google commissioned, which I think it's interesting. They pretty much exactly aligned with what our report found. Yes. I was actually quite surprised to know that even though the regulatory environment is very conducive for technology adoption, the existing IT infrastructure could actually prevent them from doing so. Previous advantage now becomes a burden. Exactly. So we've learned the perspective from cloud service provider and Google. I think it's interesting to explore this theme from the perspective of financial institutions as well. How do they view data ownership and privacy? in a highly regulated space. So here we have Karim Tomek, who is the Global Chief Analytics Officer from ING. 
You know, a core question that remains unresolved, both from a policy perspective and from a market perspective, is data ownership. And I think there's this view, at least that we've seen, that greater openness on data access and ownership could build customer trust, but also could lead to, you know, different user experiences. And it seems like the implications for fintechs are huge because data silos inherently advantage the incumbents. Do you think that's a fair characterization or would you tackle that a different way? There are some aspects of it that I also subscribe to. Definitely data silos do create kind of a barrier to provide products and services that are widely adopted, used, and create value in the marketplace. And uh, over time, if the data silos become bigger, we will face a situation where maybe a few decades ago, the telecom industry has faced, where it was hard to switch between mobile service providers because mobile phone number portability was not there. And that created quite a bit of challenges. But we see that once that was opened up, that the competition led to better service quality, wider coverage, and uh, different dimensions of innovation that led to better products and services provided by telecom companies. The financial services is a bit different beast, obviously, because you're not talking about just the phone number. A lot of other aspects of the context in which the consumers kind of live in, uh, in the real life. So yes, I think long answer to your question, you know, data silos should over time be eliminated, but in return, new services and products should be created. And that should be the end result of it. Uh, we shouldn't just say, okay, data silos should just go away because there are silos. At the end of the day, data needs to lead to a better experience and better services and products that clients and customers want to have and want to pay for. So that should be the end result. Just a follow-up question to that. You made an interesting comparison, I think, with the telecom sector because, you know, certainly in our research, you know, it's it's clear to see that the telecom sector is far and away the most advanced sector in terms of deploying intelligent technologies in almost every advanced economy, at least. Finance seems like a more difficult proposition. Do you get the sense that if finance can resolve some of these issues around consumer trust, given the complexity uh, that is unique to finance, that there could be sort of this explosion across the rest of the economy? Maybe there's less of an urgent a business case for these technologies, but it's also easier to roll them out because you don't have the type of complexity that you have in finance? I look at it as in several layers of complexity. Uh, the first layer is data itself. In order for data to be, let's say, meaningful, it needs to be consumed in a way that is making sense and making sense not maybe just to a human being, but also a platform, a machine. A lot of these processes are increasingly automated. What is automated, obviously, are the ones that are commonly used across the board. That's the lowest level of data access and data transparency. The second piece is the data that is now important to drive a certain action based on a certain method and a certain technique, um, let's say analytics uh, technique. And uh, that data can tell a lot about 
that person. An example is like a Schufa score in Germany or FICA score in the US. The portability of that obviously depends upon what that data represents and what that data captures. And so obviously, like you said, trust is an important aspect. Trust that drive data is one explained in the way that everybody understands what it represents. They have signed up for that. There's trust that that data is representing the truth. And then there's other kinds of data where similar concepts apply, but then as a company who is using that data that's now available to you needs to explain what that data represents and everybody needs to understand what it means. And so making that kind of data available to everyone so it's easy to actually access that kind of data may cause a lot of issues at the end. If the understanding is different as that data passes through different companies and different applications. And so we need to be careful what we mean by when we open up the data flow, uh, how that data is going to be used and what it will mean at the end. We need to be careful. Answer to your question is it depends as the layer of complexity of the kind of data we are looking at becomes uh, highly complex because it no longer is a raw data that is reflecting the context a person is in versus derived data, which either predicts a certain action in the future about that person or captures another aspect of the context that's not readily available, but derived from different actions that is also based on the data that's coming from different places. No, I really appreciate that answer, Karim. And I think it captures a lot of the nuance of this question that looping all data in together is a bit of an oversimplification. How do you approach the relationship between data ownership and data portability more from a market's perspective? Are these both necessary conditions for an open commercial environment? My perspective on this is maybe a bit more coming from the use of services myself. We are talking about true big data proliferation that we are asking someone as an individual to have the ownership of. That's a big, big ask. Uh, and so uh, we also then also are trying to say, okay, this person, he or she, needs to not only own all of that, but also understand and really fully grasp the extent in which that this data is used. So I think we need to make sure that we are helping individuals to be able to have this kind of transparency and also understanding and education around what that actually means. There has to be a way to protect individuals without assuming every individual has the same level of understanding of what it means when they accept a certain, let's say, quote-unquote contract. In order to use the app, you have to accept this contract. And when you say yes, you just basically lost control of the data. That's one aspect of it. The higher the complexity of the data, the, the more explainability required about the data creation and the more we have to support people understand what that means, what data is created and what data is shared based on that creation and what decisions will be made based on that. And so that's, that's on us and the policymakers to make sure that that's, that's transparent. And the second piece is when we are supporting data portability, again, what data is made portable 
also needs to be understood. But at the end of the day, it's the consumer that will be facing the downfall from all of this. And so we need to make sure that we are protecting consumers' trust and belief in us as the service providers and data controllers that we are providing the right access with the right transparency, with the right explainability of what it means with data portability and also the services and products they get at the end. So that's really, really, I think is important for this topic. How do you see the technology and the user experience over the last few years developing to be able to facilitate that type of access more efficiently and securely? I think the technology has evolved quite a bit to make sure that the access to services and products over a financial gateway or portal is secure. Uh, now, we can never say everything is 100% secure. There's no such thing in the first place. Technology availability is not restricted to anyone. So it includes those we want to protect uh, our clients from. We have to make sure that we have all the capabilities at hand to make sure uh, when we are providing services to everyone, we put utmost of utmost importance to protect their data, to protect their access to their data. But I think at the end of the day, it is also in the hands of the consumers who own that data to make sure that they're aware of their own, let's say, security and that they own access to their own applications and solutions that are given to them. And so that's also something that really is a joint effort between the companies that provide access to data and also those who own their own data. You know, I think the concept of consumer consent has evolved and maybe part of it is because GDPR codified the notion of informed consent. But to your point, it certainly seems like this is, you know, a really important area for businesses to make sure that they're not just meeting the, the bare minimum as required by law, but building trust with the consumer. What do you think the future looks like over the next few years as businesses are making efforts to build that trust? That's probably one of the advantages of incumbents in this case, where the financial institutions, I believe, are regarded as the trusted bolts of consumer data. That's really our first promise to our clients, that without any kind of consent, that we are not going to act upon that data unless it is to protect our clients' interests. As individuals, data we have is really much richer in the financial services industry as opposed to other industries. And so we have to be really aware of the fact that finance carries the burden and also responsibility to make sure, one, this is completely protected and that our clients trust us, that we are protecting their data, and that when we are providing services and products back to them, that those services and products really add value to their lives. And that that's really the critical requirement. And I think if this is all there, it shouldn't really slow down competition of any kind. It should actually improve it just because the focus is not on the data per se, but the focus then becomes more on the value creation. And I think at the core, if you look at technology, and how the early days of the technology products and services brought to marketplaces, they all served 
the purpose of making people's lives better and easier one way or the other. And I think that hasn't changed and shouldn't change over the years. Data consent becomes just a basic requirement to be able to do so. And so uh, that's my perspective. Listening to Karim talk about data, he really sounds like a consumer of data, which at the end of the day seems obvious, but I think there's some nuance there that applies to traditional finance as a whole. He shared with us some unique insights on data complexity and how the answer to data ownership principles like portability can actually vary pretty widely based on the type of data involved and the use. Yes, as he pointed out, we cannot just say that open data will lead to a better business environment. The most important thing is that people understand what data means or represents and how that data is going to be used. Right you are, UN. I don't think that's going to get resolved overnight, so it's some food for thought in the future. Thank you to everyone for listening to our three podcast episodes. We hope you enjoyed your time with us. We invite you to pay attention to Economist Impact's future research, always available at impact.economist.com. Thank you, everyone. Hope to see you in the future.